story as we go from joy to sorrow. If you're with us last week, we ended on this high note in Romans chapter 8, where we saw and we were reminded as a child of Jesus Christ, knowing him as Lord and Savior, there is nothing in this world that can ever separate us from his love. From his love, nothing can separate us. Nothing can put a barrier between us. And there is that high note, there is that encouragement for the believer. But then we shift into Romans chapter 9. And I would encourage you to go take your copy of God's Word and turn there. Romans chapter 9. And what we're going to see this morning is sorrow and burden. We're going to see sorrow in the eyes of Paul. We're going to see a burden in his Word. And what you're going to learn over these next few weeks is that chapters 9, 10, and 11 are challenging passages of Scripture. For us to grasp and understand when it comes to things like God's sovereignty, God's will, God's justice, and His mercy. Because when Paul saw Jesus Christ, he rejoiced because he saw His risen Savior. But when Paul saw his fellow countrymen, children of Israel, he wept because he knew that they were not believers. So what you're going to see this morning as we dive into this first section of Romans chapter 9 is we're going to see Paul's heart for his people and a reminder that we should have that same heart for the lost around us. The big question that we're going to wrestle with, and I say we collectively, because some of you will not wrestle with this question I'm fixing to ask. But some may wrestle with this question still today, knowing everything you know about God, knowing everything that you understand and studying His Word. There are many today who wrestle with this question. Has God's Word failed? Has God's Word failed? Because in some eyes, there are many people who believe this is true, that God has not kept His Word, that God's Word has Failed. There's a couple of reasons why these questions are being raised. And the first question that comes to mind for some is this. Can God be trusted to do what he said? Can God be trusted to do what he said? And the other question is this. Is God's word reliable? Which sounds crazy to you ask, but we are living in a day and a culture where there will be those who will say that God's word is not reliable. That God's word is nothing more than a book. That God's word doesn't stand. That God's word has failed. And the reason these questions are being asked specifically when we get to this section of scripture because it pertains to Israel. Because the question we also have to ask ourselves is this, knowing what Paul has shared towards the believer, knowing what Paul has told us as a child of God, this question sometimes comes up and it's simply this, what is Israel's Place within the promise and purposes of God. If Israel is the chosen people, where is that promise? Where is their place when it comes to the full story of God and who is? This is a problem that Paul is wrestling with because we know that God sent the Messiah to Israel to bless them. That was the promise. But yet there's another question we wrestle with. If the Messiah was the promise for Israel, why why is the church made up largely of Gentile believers? Again, these are head scratchers. We look at Scripture, we know the promise, we know the chosen people, yet when we read through the New Testament, a majority of the new converts are Gentiles. So if Gentiles are the believers that God is calling, where does Israel fit into the picture? Because here's the next question. It's a series of questions this morning that I wrestle with this. I study scripture, and some of you may wrestle with also. And the other question is this if God's word failed, I said if God's word failed, in regard to Israel, then how can we know we can trust him? If God has promised the children of Israel to be blessed and promised to make them a great nation, yet God hasn't done that completely in some people's minds, and the Gentiles are the ones who are being chosen. How does Israel fit in this? And if this is the case, and the Gentiles are the ones that are coming, does God, does God still have a plan for Israel? And is Israel still the chosen people? 
It has God's word failed or not. Again, these are questions that some wrestle with. But here's what you're going to learn this morning as we study scripture. You're going to learn this morning that God has not failed. God has kept his word concerning Israel. He's kept his word concerning us so that we should rejoice because of this, because we have security and we have assurance in this. We can trust our God. No matter what's going on in this world, we can trust our God to do what he says he's going to do on his time, not my time. This morning, I want to set the stage with Israel in the front mirror but then show you what comes afterwards because we have to start with the source. And the source is Israel. So this morning I want us to look at in the first five verses the tragedy of Israel. The tragedy of Israel. Romans chapter 9 starting in verse 1 it says this. I tell the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I wish I could that I myself were a curse from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promise of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, the eternally blessed God. Amen. Paul jumps right into this, looking at the contrast of the promises that were given to the children of Israel to their current state, where they are in their relationship with God. The children of Israel have been given many privileges, but they have not acted on these privileges. Because of that, Paul is deeply concerned for his kinsmen. Paul is concerned for his brothers. Notice something in Scripture. He said, I tell you the truth in Christ. Remember, Paul is identifying himself as a believer, as a Christian. He also calls himself an apostle to the Gentiles. But that did not mean that he did not love his brothers, his fellow countrymen. We see in verses 1 and 2 that Paul is in anguish. Look with me in verse 2. It says he has sorrow and continual grief in his heart. He says, I am speaking the truth. I am not lying about these things, yet I am brokenhearted. Because you are separated from the Father. We ended chapter 8 with the pleasures and wonders of God to get into chapter 9, seeing grief and burden. There's no hope. Because these are unbelieving kinsmen who are hearing these words coming from Paul, who is a devout Jew and also a follower of Jesus Christ. And notice his burden. Notice how burdened Paul is for his countrymen. Look at verse 3. And notice the wording. Notice the language here. He says in verse 3, For I could wish that I myself were cursed from Christ for my brethren. He almost says, listen, I am willing to be separated from Christ so my fellow countrymen can know who Jesus Christ is. He's willing to trade places with unbelieving Jews who stood in condemnation. And we see this agony. And the reason Paul has this burden, the reason Paul has this agony is because the Jews are not saved. Paul being a missionary, Paul being an evangelist, Paul knew he had to one, share his theology. He had to share who Jesus Christ is. But number two, Paul had to have a burden for the lost, whether they be the Gentile or whether they be the Jews. And while we struggle with grasping the sovereignty of God as we read through this chapter, here's a reminder this morning, and it's not in your outline, but I would encourage you to write this down either on your outline or somewhere in your Bible where you'll see this. And here's the reminder for all of us, including myself, it's simply this. Every Christian should have a burden for those separated from Christ. If you want to paraphrase it, you should have a burden for the lost. There should be a collective burden for those outside these doors who do not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. There should be a burden for those who live within a one-block radius of this church 
For those who don't know Jesus Christ, there should be a burden. You let her say amen as much as she wants. But there should be a burden. And we're going to see Paul's burden. Here's why he has a burden. We read verses 4 and 5, and we see the privileges that Israel had. They were a special nation. Israel was a special nation, and they are in a special position within the salvation story. They were adopted. Scripture says in verse 4 that they are adopted. Now, this adoption is not talking about the adoption of United Spirit in salvation. We are adopted into the family of God. We say, Jesus, ask Jesus Christ to be Lord and Savior. That's our adoption. But the adoption that he's talking about here is Israel was handpicked by God to be his people. And he adopted them into that. But think about this when it comes to the children of Israel. God's glory was revealed to them. He revealed the glory to them. Listen, they have covenants. They have promises that God made within their everlasting covenant. God gave them the law. God gave them the privilege of worshiping Him. He gave them promises. The greatest promise He gave the children of Israel was the coming of the Messiah. He gave them godly ancestry. Think about the prophets. We read about Moses. We read about Daniel. We read about Isaiah. We read about these men who God placed in history to lead His people, to remind His people of God's grace, God's goodness, and God's majesty. And these are also the people from whom Christ came. Paul says that Jesus is God. Paul calls Jesus God. It's something the Jews would not believe. Israel has all these blessings. Israel has all these promises, yet there's still an issue. There's still an issue within this group of people. Take your copy of God's Word. Turn to me with you for just a moment to John chapter 1. For just a second, I want you to see the problem. I want you to see the issue with your own eyes this morning. They have this great list we just ran through. They have the privilege to worship God. They have the covenants. They have the promises. They hear the coming of the Messiah. They hear all these things that are promised to them that we just read in verses 4 and 5. But in John chapter 1, look with me at verse 11. Verse 11. Verse 11 simply says this. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. His own people did not receive him. Paul later would say that the coming of Jesus was a stumbling block for some. Because Jesus was not what they pictured, yet Jesus is what they needed. So the Jews reject Christ, and this broke Paul's heart. It broke his heart to the point that he needed to set the stage for what comes next. Because what you're going to see in our time this morning, in this section of Romans chapter 9, are four truths. Four truths that affirm who God is, but they also affirm the sovereign freedom that God has in doing what he does, when he does, how he does. So this morning, follow along as we look at these four truths and we read them in Scripture. Truth number one is simply this. God is working out his sovereign purpose in history. God is working out his sovereign purpose in history. Pick up with me in Romans chapter 9, starting in verse 6. But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebecca also had conceived by one man, even our father Isaac. For the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to an election might stand not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. And it is written, Jacob I have loved, 
but Esau I have hated. In the very part of verse 6, Paul gives us the main idea. Paul gives us this thesis statement. It is not that the word of God has taken no effect. In other words, he is saying that God's word has not failed. You may think it's failed. You may think it falls short. But Paul says in very clear words, God's word has not failed. And he gives the explanation of this in the second part of verse 6 when he says, For they are not all Israel who are of Israel. Paul is going to show us this very word. And here's the reminder from Paul. God never promised that all of Israel would be saved. Nowhere in Scripture do we see God say these words. Every Israelite will be saved. They are His chosen people. They are His nation. But nowhere in Scripture does it say the entire nation will be saved. And that's what Paul is pointing out to us this morning. Because you see there in verse 7. All there are children because they are the of the seed of Abraham. Every descendant of Abraham is not a child that was promised from God. Think about your Old Testament history. Think about Old Testament children. Go backwards and go forward. In Scripture, in verse 8, you see two phrases. Children of the promise and children of physical descent. There are two different groups we're talking about here. And he's going to point this out. Paul is explaining that God deserves the right because he is sovereign. He deserves the right to determine who his people will be. Because of this, God has chosen the Gentiles to be part of the family of God. And we know that the Jews are part of that story, but it's only a remnant that are part of the story. So Paul has to give us a history lesson to remind us of this fact. In verses 7 and 9, we are reminded of Isaac over Ishmael. Isaac over Ishmael. If you know your Old Testament, remember, God told Abraham you're going to be the father of each nation. And Abraham and Sarah couldn't wait. And remember, Abraham had a relation with Hagar, who was Sarah's name, and Israel was born. And Abraham thought, this is it. This is God being promised when we've had a child. And God said, no, this is not the promise. Israel is not the chosen one. Israel is not the fulfillment of the promise. Because look at what Scripture says in verse 9. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And we know that son was Isaac. That was the promise. That was the plan. That was the chosen one. He's the one that's going to fulfill the promise that God made. But notice that, that this chosen offspring was not the result of a miracle. He was a result of everybody, not a human achievement. It's a miracle this child had to remember. Abraham was old. He was 84 when Ishmael was born. He was 100 when Isaac showed up. I'm not a good man, that's old. That's a promise from God. That's a miracle from God. That God kept his word, we see that promise fulfilled in Scripture. So we see that Isaac is the chosen one. Not Israel. Yes, Israel is born of Abraham. Israel is the child of Abraham, but he's not the promise that God says in Scripture. And in your outline, I make this statement that salvation is not by birth. It's not by birth or works, but by grace. You're saved by grace through faith, not through works, not through who you were born of. And after Paul's reminding us this scripture, we think about the sovereignty of God. Yes, Abraham has two sons, but one is the promise and one is not. But Paul doesn't stop here. Paul doesn't say, here's your history lesson, let's move forward. No, he takes us to another incident. Jacob over Esau. Jacob over Esau, verses 10 through 13. And here's what's interesting about this story. 
with Ishmael and Isaac, you have one dad and two moms. With Jacob and Esau, you have one dad and one mom. And Paul points that out in Scripture. He points that out in verse 10 for clarification. Because the outsider says, okay, these both the same mom, same dad, but they must be part of the promise. Again, no. Listen to what Scripture says. Yes, they're both his children. They're both the children of Isaac. Yes, they're both the descendants. But one is going to follow God, and one's going to choose to follow his own liking, his own thinking, his own theology. We know that Jacob is the promise. And Scripture highlights this. Do not lose sight of this. Jump down to verse 13. And notice what Paul says. Paul is quoting from the book of Malachi. And look at what he says there. He says, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. These are God's words. These are strong words. Hate is a strong word. But let's get some clarification this morning to what we're looking at here in this verse. Take your copy of God's word. Turn over to Malachi chapter 1. Malachi chapter 1. And I want you to see in context what is being said about Israel and about Esau and about Jacob. Malachi chapter 1 verses 2 through 3. Listen to the words. This is the burden of the Lord being spoken through the prophet Malachi. And look at what he says here. Chapter 1 starting verse 2. I have loved you, says the Lord. Yet you say, in what way have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord? Yet Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. In laying waste his mountains and his heritage for the jackals of the wilderness. Esau would be the father of a nation called Edom, who were opposed to the things of God, who hated the things of God, who chose to do their own thing at their own time. And because this God put a barrier between him and Esau, and between the people of Edom, so point in history tells us that the nation of Edom is wiped off the map because of their sin. Yet Edom, yet Esau is a child of Isaac, who's a child of Abraham, but he's still not part of the promise. Yet Jacob is part of the promise. But let's stop there. Sunday school question. What does Jacob's name mean? Deceiver. Jacob was a deceiver. Yet God still used him. That, my friends, is the sovereignty of God. God uses those who are good, and God will use those who don't always have good intention. But God will use them because He is in control, because He is sovereign. And because He is sovereign, the reminder is this that God's word has not failed. In this sovereign freedom that God has, He chooses people for Himself, and He works out His purpose through history through individuals. That's truth number one. Truth number two, God's ways are just and His salvation is merciful. God's ways are just and His salvation is merciful. Romans chapter 9 verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills, nor him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills, he pardons. Again, Paul is using the Old Testament to clarify who God is in his sovereignty, that God's ways are just, and we don't understand it, and that God's salvation is for mercy, and is merciful. In these verses, he goes back to the Exodus encounter. He reminds us of Moses. Now, mercy is expressed 
to Moses, but to Pharaoh is judgment. To Pharaoh is judgment. He is going to disperse judgment on Pharaoh. We see God do this. But notice something. Paul is going to appeal to God's sovereign freedom and mercy. When we read verse 15. Verse 15, look what he says to Moses. This is God talking. He says, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. Far from being unjust, we have a God who is merciful, a God who is gracious, and a God who is compassionate. Listen, you and I do not deserve God's saving mercy. We don't deserve it. We can't earn it. But if you and I are in Jesus Christ, we should praise God in humility. We should praise God in simply in awe of who He is. Because you and I deserve nothing but God's hand of judgment. And we think about this statement. I had to write it out so I can remember to say it correctly. If we receive what we deserve, which is judgment, or if we receive what we do not deserve, which is mercy. Listen, it's either one or the other. Either you're going to get mercy from God or you're going to receive judgment from God. And listen very carefully. If you are lost this morning, if you don't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, I'm going to be very blunt this morning. It's on you. If you don't know Jesus, it's you that haven't made a decision. It's you who have accepted this free gift. And yes, it is a free gift. The reason I bring up salvation, look at verse 16. Salvation is mentioned there, but you don't see it. But salvation is there. Notice something in verse 16. It says, so then it. You see the word it in that scripture? That word it is referring to salvation. When he says, so then it is not of him who wills or him who runs, but God who shows mercy, that it is salvation that comes from God. Listen, salvation does not depend on our willingness. It depends on God's mercy and God's grace. Yet we choose salvation. Don't lose sight of this for just a moment. Be very careful here. We can read this passage and say, well, God's picking and choosing. No. God offers salvation to every one of us. We choose to accept it or deny it. Don't ever forget that. There are many who will try to tell you that God sits up in heaven and says, you're in, you're out. You're in, you're out. That's not how it works. God gives the free gift of salvation to every one of us. Yet there are some who will say yes and some who will say no. And yes, God knows He's going to tell him no. God knows it because He is sovereign. He is in control of all things. But Paul doesn't stop here showing us God's sovereignty. He talks about Pharaoh. Remember Pharaoh? Pharaoh has the children in captivity. Moses goes to him and says, let my people go. And remember what Scripture says that God would harden his heart. Again, he points this out in Scripture that we just read. Verse 18, therefore he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he pardons. We remember that God is in control reading this verse. Yes, Pharaoh had power. Yes, Pharaoh had authority. Pharaoh could choose to let the children of Israel go. Yet Moses was told ahead of time, listen, you're going to talk with Pharaoh, you're going to show him great things, and his heart is going, his heart is going to be hardened. He's going to refuse. And I know he's going to refuse, but you keep going in. But it's coming. And God knows these things. And here's the reminder when you read this, these, these verses that Moses is following God's will and Pharaoh is choosing to ignore who God is. And here's the reminder that God is glorified in salvation, but God is also glorified in judgment. God is glorified in both these things. John Scott, who's a commentary writer, he wrote this. He said, the fact is, as Paul demonstrated in the early chapters of this letter, that all human beings are sinful and guilty in God's sight, and nobody deserves to be saved. 
Nobody. Therefore, listen to what John Stott writes. He says, therefore, if God hardens some, he's not being unjust, for that is what their sin deserves. If, on the other hand, he has compassion on some, he is not being unjust, for he is dealing with them in mercy. So for you and me as a believer, because we have mercy through Jesus Christ, listen, because God has shown his mercy towards us in sending his son to die for our sins, you and I should be praising him with every ounce of strength we own and praising God for who he is and for what he's done. There should be praise coming out of our lips and praise coming out of our lives because of who God is. And this is the truth we just read about. That's truth number two. Truth number three. God has the right of a potter over his clay. Paul has, God has the right of a potter over his clay. Verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to the man who formed it, Why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel with honor and another for dishonor? What if God, wanting to show his wrath to make his power known, Endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. And that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessel of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Like any good teacher, Paul anticipated follow up questions. He's already shared these truths about God's sovereignty. He shared the truth about God's will. And he knows a question is coming up. When he gets to verse 19, and he knows that somebody's going to ask the question, if God has done all these things, if God is sovereign, if God continues to show his mercy, why are we still at fault? Why are we still the ones to blame? Why are we the ones still separated from him? If God is in control of everything sovereignly, why does he still blame us? That's the question being asked in verse 19. But we get to verse 20. And Paul reminds the one who's asking the question about the potter. When the potter is working with the clay, he controls what comes out of the clay. He controls what vessel is made. He controls whether it's tall, short. He controls the look, what it's used for. The potter has all of the control. And Paul makes that statement about the potter. But then we look at verse 20. In verse 20, Paul says, Oh man, who are you to reply against God? In other words, who are you to talk back to God? In other words, who do you think you are? With your limited knowledge of who God is, with the limited knowledge of your sinful condition, where are you to think that you can tell Almighty God how to run this world? That's the question being asked, and that is the response. Yet our attitude, our attitude of knowing who God is and knowing what God does is reflected in Scripture. Psalm 115 verse 3 says this, Our God is in heaven and does whatever He pleases. Our God is in heaven and does whatever He pleases, and I am thankful for that. That He is in control and I'm not. But Paul, again, Old Testament, he gives us this image of the potter and the clay. Now listen very carefully. If you look at verse uh, 21 right there, know this, you are not just some lump of clay. It may feel like that some days, but you're not a lump of clay. In the hand of the potter, you have the potential to be a masterpiece. In the hand of the potter, you can be used for his glory. But let me remind you of something. 
The clay does not determine the potter. The potter determines the clay. And we serve a God who's in control. If God is sovereign and God is in control of all things, He has the right to do with that clay what He wants to. And church, let me remind you of this, that we serve a God that He's going to have some pots are going to be used for honorable purposes and others are used for dishonorable purposes. He's the potter, we're the clay. He's making the pot. God makes some pots for honorable purposes and God makes some for dishonorable purposes. Think about a pot for a second. I do not have a great thumb, but this much I know. That a pot used for a good purpose looks like this. A tomato plant. A pot for a bad purpose looks like the other one. And if you plant the other one, you will get a call from the sheriff. But this is an example. Listen, I could have two red pots that look exactly the same up there. But one could be used for an honorable purpose, one could be used for this honorable purpose. Listen, too many times we want to talk back to God and tell God that He's got it wrong and we have it right. Whereas a child of God, if we grasp this idea that He's the potter and I'm the clay, the minute I grasp that thought, the minute I understand that, here's my mindset. I should be like Moses. I should take my shoes off and understand that I am on holy ground when I'm in His presence. Whether in the church or in my prayer closet or even in my car when I'm praying to God, I am on holy ground. And that should be my attitude because He is the potter, I am the clay. If He's the potter and I'm the clay, I should be like Job. When I realize my sin and realize my shortcomings, I need to cover my mouth and shut up. I need to, like Job, understand that I am in awe and in the presence of a holy Father who loves me. And when He is rebuking me, when He is getting on to me for falling short of His glory, falling short of His will, I need to cover my hands with my mouth and submit to the goodness of who God is. And that should be for all of us because notice what He says there in verses 22 through 23. Notice this. He says these words, What if God wanted to show His wrath to make His power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that He might make known the riches of His glory on the vessels of mercy, which He prepared beforehand for glory. Paul tells us that God is merciful in salvation and is just and wrath. Listen, God is patient. Man is God patient. God is patient with a lot of us. Because we keep trying to go in the wrong direction that falls the direction He already has for us. So we try to do our own thing. So He's patient. Think about the experience with Pharaoh. Think about the experience with Pharaoh. Pharaoh, Pharaoh would not bow his knee to God. Remember, Pharaoh said, Who is God? Why do I need to worship him? Why should I bow down to him? But Paul makes this statement that God is merciful in the way he demonstrates his love for us. And here's the thing. We don't appreciate his mercy until we are against a backdrop of wrath. When we have trouble in our life is when we tend to see his mercy. In Ephesians chapter 2, you don't turn there, but in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, listen to what it says. He says these words, Among whom we all once conduct ourselves in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. Verse 4, But God, who is rich in mercy because of His great love, with which He loved us. So God acts according to His purpose, God acts according to His grace, whether it's in wrath or in mercy, because wrath and mercy are both attributes of a God who we should be glorifying. We glorify Him in the wrath, we glorify Him in the mercy. Truth number four, God's promises include many Gentiles and a Jewish remnant. God's promises include many Gentiles and a Jewish Paul seamlessly shifts from verse 23 to verse 24. 
And in these last few verses in this section we're going to study this morning, Paul again goes to the Old Testament. Paul describes how believing Jews and Gentiles make up the people of God. And Paul contends that God is free to dispense His mercy on who He chooses. And that includes the Gentiles that are part of His plan. And God's plan was for the Gentiles was before Jesus came into the picture. God had planned to bring the Gentiles in. Again, because God's word has not failed. We see that God was for both the Jew and the Gentile. Look at me in verse 24. Even us will be called not of the Jews only, but also the Gentiles. And he said also in Hosea, my prophet of the Old Testament. And this is what he says. I will call them my people who were not my people, and her beloved who were not to love. And it shall come to pass in the place where it is said of them, you are not my people. There they shall be called sons of the living God. In that one verse, Paul is telling us that God has called the Gentiles to him. He has called them his people. Again, what matters is grace, not race. It's all about grace. It's not about where you were born. It's not about who your grandparents are. It's about grace, period. It should always be about grace. For Jacob and Esau, it was about grace. For Isaac and Ishmael, it was about grace. It was based on grace and nothing else. But Paul closes out with that section and calls it. Look, he says there in verse 25 and 26. Think about your status as a Christian this morning. Because of the free gift of salvation, you are beloved. You are my people. God said, you are sons of the living God. That's because God has chosen you to be part of his family. And the last time I checked, I'm pretty sure about this. We're all part of the Gentile group. We're not the chosen ones. Yet God brings us into his family. And he was going to do that before Jesus even came into the picture. But when we got to the Gospels, he says to Hosea, you are my people, you are beloved, you will be called sons of the living God. This is all by God's sovereignty about his will. But Paul goes one more step. He calls out the Gentiles. We gotta get back to where we started, to the children of Israel. Look we very quickly, verses 27 through 29. Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the children of Israel may be the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved. For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness, because the Lord will make short work upon the earth. And as Isaiah said before, unless the Lord and the Sabbath had left us a seed, we would have become like Saul, and we would have been made like the Lord. What Paul says is that God has reserved a remnant of the Jewish nation, a remnant to be his children. Because if God had not brought them into the fold, had not, God had not had a remnant, Scripture says, Isaiah says those words, we'd be like Sodom and Gomorrah, wipe off the face of the map. This morning, what I shared is a lot of process, it's a lot to understand, a lot to grasp. Let me see if I can put it in a, a nice little nutshell here for just a moment as we close our time this morning. What's the takeaway this morning? Reading these verses, knowing what God says about the Gentiles, what God says about Israel, what God, what Paul says in this history lesson of these others who were chosen and those who weren't, what is our response in this verse and in these scriptures? Very quickly, here you go. We should share Paul's burden. I started my message with that statement and I'll say it again. We should have a burden for the lost. We should be broken hearted for those who don't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Hey, shameless plug, church. Tonight's night you want to invite that un unsaved neighbor to come. Tonight's night you want to invite that friend that you've been talking to about. Because we're in very low key tonight. We're in very low key. We're going to take care of business, yes. 
But then we're going to fellowship. If I have a burden for the lost, can I fill those times I want to invite those people? So we have a burden for the lost. Listen, here's the other thing. Never doubt God's word. Never doubt God's word. Because his word never fails. His word is always true. Paul has gone through links to show us examples from the Old Testament that God's word can be trusted, that God's word is true. Here's another point. Embrace, and here's a hard one for all of us, embrace the mystery of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. Embrace his sovereignty. Embrace the fact that he is in control. And embrace the fact that you are accountable to God. God is sovereign, yes. And you must believe he is sovereign. You must believe he's in control. And guess what? That is mystery. Because no one's ever going to figure it out. How it all works. How it all can happen. But that's part of the mystery of his sovereignty. And because of that sovereignty, here's the next thought. Allow this vision of God's sovereignty to increase your faith. As a believer in Jesus Christ, you rest on God's sovereignty. You trust Him and you live by faith. And because God is sovereign, you don't have to freak out when things go on around you. You don't have to panic. You don't have to worry. You don't have to be scared because God is in control. And because God is in control, you can share the gospel. You can live out your faith in the midst of opposition. Because there are those who come against you and tell you, stop sharing your faith. Stop talking about Jesus. Stop talking about the church. And because of who he is, you can stand in that opposition because of the faith. And you have confidence in who he is and what he's done. Bow down in majesty before God. Bow down before God's majesty. When was the last time you were in awe of God? When was the last time you were somewhere and you just simply said, Wow? We take the littlest things for granted and think about the awesomeness of God and bow down in simple majesty. Thank you for what you found. Listen, everyone has seen a guy in the back here where we wake up, open our eyes, and say, Good morning, God. And that guy in the back The same was around us, taking it in and slowing down enough to say, God, thank you. Because we serve a God who is worthy of our devotion. We serve a God who is worthy of our worship. So put away the trinkets. Put away the things that are distracting from God so you can marvel at His majesty. Marvel at His mystery. Listen, I've shared this before. I like to marvel at God's majesty in the middle of the night when I'm outside of the stars. Because I'm reminded that I serve a God who saw me and told me that everyone of the stars is a place where He wanted to be. That's how we got His majesty in awe. Watching the sunrise. Watching a bird fly across the sky. Watching a new flower come out of the ground. Those are times we should stop and just say, God, you are awesome. Do not wait for the big thing to get our attention. Last thought. Never get over the wonder, the wonder of God's saving mercy and grace. Never get over the wonder of God's saving mercy and grace. Do you remember the day you asked Jesus Christ into your heart? For some of you, you can tell me the day, the time, and where you were when it happened. For others, you know that you know when that sky, you may not remember the exact date, what color the sky was that day, but you know the day you asked Jesus Christ into your heart. Never lose sight of that wonder of what you did the day you asked Jesus Christ the Lord to save your life. Never lose wonder of His saving mercy and His saving grace. Listen, we praise Him with our lips. And we praise Him in our life. But the only way you can do that is knowing Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Every head bowed and every eye closed. This morning I told you when we started our time together, we were going from, from joy to sorrow. We've seen Paul's burdens. We've seen Paul's tears. We've seen Paul's heart. This morning, my prayer as we have studied God's word together is that you would have that same burden. That you would be in awe of who God is. 
if you would remember that he is in control because he is sovereign. Because he's in control, we can trust him in everything. Our trust comes from knowing him first as Lord and Savior, but also trusting that his word is true and his word never changes. But the only way you can praise him with your lips, the only way you can praise him with your heart is by knowing Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And this morning, there may be some here who don't know Jesus as Lord and Savior. This morning, you can go from being in darkness to being in light. That's only a decision you can make because the free gift of salvation is offered. You can choose to receive it or not. For some this morning, it may be you need to refocus your attention back to the things of God and not to the stuff of the world. Whatever the case may be, a moment we're going to move to a time of response, a time of invitation. And as we sing, allow God to speak to your heart and allow God's voice to be clear. It may be just need to come to the altar to pray. I'll be down front if you need to pray with me. But my prayer is this, that we move to this time that you will be business with God. Block out the outside noise and allow Him to talk clearly to each one. Father, we enter into a time of response and a time of invitation. My prayer is simply this, that your will be done. That Father, you will speak to us as individuals. Father, that you've reminded us this morning through Paul of your sovereignty. You've reminded us that you're in control. You've reminded us that we, as Gentiles, are part of the family of God. Because we receive the free gift of salvation found through your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, this morning, there may be some here who don't know your Son as their Savior. There may be some this morning who've been running from God instead of running towards God. Father, there may be some this morning who've gone on the path, gone off the path, and they back on the path. Whatever the case may be, you're in this sacred time right now. Again, Father, speak to our hearts. May your will be done. We send the praise in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Amen.